Okay. Luke chapter 20, 9 through 19. We've got a microphone here. We've got two mics here. There's only one person carrying a mic. Here you go, he's fast. Okay. <laughs> Questions from this morning? Mitchell McClure. Uh, you talked about the leaders knowing yeah. that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And of course, this isn't uh, in opposition to that, uh, but I want to understand it in its proper context. Yeah. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this or if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay. Is that an understanding salvifically? I think so. That's the way I've always taken that in 1 Corinthians. They didn't realize that they were achieving God's purposes and goals and bringing about a salvation. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. And certainly, I'm not saying necessarily that Pilate and Herod and the Romans knew what they were doing. And I'm not even fully convinced that the leaders of Israel knew had a fully developed Christology. Minimally, they knew God sent this man. This man represents God. They clearly understand that much. Whether they get the full sonship of him or not, I wouldn't die on that hill. But there is no honest mistake. that They don't honestly think. He's a false prophet. They understand this is a true representative of God with a true message from God, and they hated that. That's as far as I would go. But he's already said things implicitly in Luke that make it clear they're culpable and they're guilty. When they say Satan casts out demons by Satan, he says, oh, come on, that, that doesn't make any sense. House divided doesn't make it. Doesn't, you know, and he's pointing out, you know who I am. You know, at the very least, I'm from God and I'm his representative. Minimally, they know that. So, um, but yeah, the First Corinthians 2 passage, I think, is speaking salvifically. They did not realize... That in, I mean, certainly Satan didn't, at least. I know Paul elsewhere talks about that. He didn't realize that by killing Jesus, he was actually committing suicide. I mean, he put in effect that which defeated him. You know, death is swallowed up in death. Um, so, yeah. No good question. Oh, Elsa, microphone, and then Mike. If I could add to oh. that really quickly. Hold on, Elsa. He wants to add something. Um, so, along with that, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. It's not verse 16. Uh, Verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Yeah. Um, So... How does receiving mercy connect with uh, acting ignorantly in unbelief? And how does that also connect to what Jesus says upon the cross? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Okay. Easy, easy. Sorry, that went a little bit deeper there. Uh, um, so let me, let me take that one at a time. Paul doesn't show up on the scene until Acts um, 8, correct? 
is Stephen's stoned in seven. And Acts 8 begins, and Paul is holding the garments, and he approved. So we have no idea where Paul is during the crucifixion, during the events in Jerusalem. And I'm not suggesting that every last Israelite knew. But Jesus is saying to the people who have encountered him, the people who have seen him, the people who have seen his miracles, you know. You're, you're culpable. There's plenty of people in Israel who have not seen Jesus, who have not seen his miracles. They've heard reports. And there's certainly room there for some confusion. I think that's part of the reason why God validated the message through the works of the apostles and the miracles they did. Because there is a legitimate, oh, everything's changed, and we now welcome Gentiles, and we, don't eat, we now don't observe the food laws, and we don't go to the temple anymore. Uh, that's a pretty big claim when God validates it with miracles and signs and stuff through the apostles because there's plenty of people who hadn't been there to see what had happened. So Paul absolutely can be in ignorance. Now the answer um, to your question about Jesus' statement on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, that's, a, that's a deeper question. Um, I think part of, part of the problem is if we think somehow ignorance removes guilt, well, the law of Moses doesn't hold that up. Um, the law of the conscience doesn't hold that up. And I, I think the best way I understand what Jesus is saying is there are many people here who don't fully comprehend what's going on. I probably tend to think that's more of the group of the people that we're seeing in the temple right now because we've seen the distinction between the people and the, the people and the leaders. And Jesus' prayer request I think is through means. The, in other words, I would see the events of the book of Acts as the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer request so that when Peter goes to them and said, you put to death the author of life and they repent and believe, now God's forgiven them. That, that Jesus is not saying, apart from the gospel and apart from faith and apart from repentance, forgive them. He's saying, bring about a state of affairs where they're forgiven. And then the early chapters of the book of Acts precisely show that. So that's, I don't know if that's, is that scratching where you're itching or is that, still it's the mic. Or is that, yeah. No, I think the itch has been satisfied. Okay, okay. <laughs> Mike, we'll go to Mike, then we'll go to Elsa. Oh. The, the priests in the temple, did they not believe all the prophets on, you know, what was to come? Did they just, I mean, if they actually knew who Jesus was, weren't they aware of all these prophecies? That, how, would, how would they get around that by all their decisions? Well, they were getting around it because they didn't want it to be true. <laughs> that's, that's the whole point of their guilt is that the miracles were unmistakable. They never tried to deny Jesus did miracles. But they had corrupted the true worship of God so much that the cost of giving up that power, that authority, that control, the cost of humbling themselves publicly, these are people who love honor, who love the best seats, and to say we got it totally wrong is an unacceptable cost for these people. So they're simply all in. They're committed to their way of doing things, and so we'll just silence the one who's shining light on it. I mean, that, that's the real issue. They loved their sin. They loved their way. And they wouldn't give it up. They were, they were looking for Messiah who's going to come along, pat him on the back, say, well done, thanks for holding the fort, and I'll take it from here. Not a Messiah coming along saying, you guys have totally ruined and twisted everything. Repent. And they couldn't abide that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. 
Oh, yes. So they, like, so they sent in John chapter 1, they sent a delegation from Jerusalem. Are you the prophet? Are you the one to come? So that they understood that there is a coming Messiah. They thought the coming Messiah was going to make Israel great again. They thought the coming Messiah, well, no, they thought it was going to elevate and exalt Israel and, and raise them up among the nations. And they thought they were looking for a geopolitical savior, not a spiritual savior. And so when this Messiah said, I'm not here to institute a geopolitical kingdom right now. I am here if you'll repent and trust me to forgive your sins. Their response was, what sins? We're the good guys. <laughs> We're the good guys. Jesus, come on. And so when... Yeah, it, yeah they, they don't want to humble themselves. They don't want to repent. They don't want to turn or change. And so they're unwilling to accept and receive his message. And what, the, what happens is the generation who's alive in the day of the prophet puts him to death or drives him out. And then the next generation, this is what, turn to Luke, um, turn to Luke, I think 13? Or is it 11? 11, right? 11. Um, 47. Woe to you if you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you're witnesses, and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you built their tombs. So they're saying, we, we never would have done that. After the fact, when there's no cost anymore, they are willing to receive these people as prophets. It's, it's a neat trick. It's why they haven't really gone on the record for John the Baptist. No, they haven't gone out to him. No, they haven't. But they haven't repudiated them. So they're leaving room so that after John the Baptist passes from the scene, they could eventually say, well, it turns out John was a prophet but never actually responding in the moment to the recall to repentance. And so they build, verse 49, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send you prophets and apostles and some whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. The whole argument is you're no different. It's the same, and we're no different apart from God's grace as well. God raised up Moses. They rejected Moses. God took them free out of Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. God sent them judges. He sent them prophets. And by and large, they rejected them. They gave them the Heisman, right? And then along comes the same thing. It's the same point Stephen makes in his speech in Acts. Is you guys have been, you're all of one sort. It's not that you're the good guys and your fathers are the bad guys. At every step of the way, this is what you guys do. Um, you don't want to give God what his due is, what, what he's looking for, which is faith and, and faithfulness. So um, they, 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 they're looking for a Messiah. And like even Nicodemus, when he comes to Jesus, we know you're from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus' response is, yeah, so you need to get born again. You've got to start all over from scratch again, Nicodemus. <laughs> you know, and then that's what they stumble over, the humility that's needed. They're, they're honestly looking for someone to come along and say, wow, you guys did a great job of reforming the nation. You did a great job of calling the people to faithfulness. You've done a wonderful job shepherding my people. Thank you so much. Here's some honor. Here's some positions, and I'll take it from here. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're expecting. And so when the call was repent, <laughs> that was unacceptable. That was unacceptable for them. Um, Elsa. So in thinking about the 
scribes and Pharisees that knew. Yeah. If we move forward 2,000 years, <clears throat> the current rabbis, would you say they're just perpetuating that lie because they know? Well, I think we're all doing it. I mean, all of us, apart from God's grace, are doing it. And what, go to Romans chapter 1. This, this, I go here again and again and again. If you sit in this ABF, you'll probably notice we go to Romans 1 a lot. Romans 1 is foundational for my understanding of mankind. Um, this is God's anthropology. This is man apart from grace. And this is why God is angry. And, and if you track the argument of Romans, it's, it's striking because Paul begins by saying, man, I am not ashamed. I love the gospel, right? So in Romans 1... Verse 16, everyone's you know, favorite verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Why are you not ashamed of it? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So why does Paul love the gospel and he's not ashamed of it? Because the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Do we start talking about God's righteousness next? No, we talk about something else being revealed, and it's God's wrath. And Paul will not return again to the discussion of God's righteousness being revealed until the middle of chapter 3, verse um, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest. So from 118 all the way through 3, um, 3 verse 21 is, is kind of like pause there, you need to understand the problem first. And so Paul is going to systematically explain why all of mankind abides under the wrath of God. And I want you to get what the fundamental charge is. The fundamental charge is, you know perfectly well that I exist and you refuse to acknowledge and live in accordance with that knowledge. That's the fundamental charge. The fundamental charge is willful ignorance. So whether or not it's Jews being willfully ignorant of the Messiah, whether it's an atheist being willfully ignorant of a God who exists, whether it's someone in another religion, to varying degrees, we're all like children, stuffing our fingers in our ears, closing our eyes, going, no, no, you're not there. So let's just, let me, let's read Romans 1.18. So this is why it's so critical, because you will meet really nice people, really nice, sympathetic people who do not present themselves this way, and the temptation will be, is what God says about humanity right? Or is what this really nice person who says they're seeking and they're open to spirituality right? And so you got to get Romans 1, 2, and 3 fixed in your brain because God is saying, apart from grace, this is mankind. And this is why I'm angry at mankind. And, and so it, to me, it's so foundational. So for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? By their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And, and I've made this point before, but I'll make it again. Paul is not saying um, the sufficient evidence to conclude God exists is available for men. Well, he is saying it. He's saying much more than that. If I, if I, if I were to switch the analogy to um, you know, being accountable for knowing what time it is, Paul's not just saying, well, there's a clock on the wall, so anyone who wants to could look and could see the time. Paul's saying, not, there's a clock on the wall, so if you want to know the time, you could know the time. He's saying, every one of you's looked at the clock, understood the clock, taken in what time it is, and then chosen to pretend they don't know what time it is. That's what he's saying about the knowledge of God to man. 
This is why there are no innocent natives anywhere. This is true of everyone. So look at the language. He's not saying you could know God exists. He's saying you do. Verse 19, for what can be known about God, now there's the possibility, is plain to them. Not should be plain to them. It is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You looked at the clock, you read the time, you understood it. That's what Paul is saying. It's a much, much larger claim than simply everyone who wants to know if God exists could. It's not, he's making a much larger claim. For ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Here's Paul. You have no excuse, Paul says, because you know perfectly well God exists. That's what he's saying. That's why I don't believe in atheists. I'm an atheist. No, no, don't mistake me. People convince, see, I've probably said that five times, and now you get it, Don. There you go. I'm an atheist. No, but people eventually, and we'll see this, delude themselves. So I do believe that people have convinced themselves of this lie, that every atheist is not walking around 24 hours a day saying, I know God exists. The point is, at the bottom of their knowledge is that knowledge. And they suppress it, and they hold it down, and they, they delude themselves with a lie that they eventually do come to believe, in a sense. But when they stand before God, they will not be able to say, I didn't know you were there. Yes, you did. You spent the rest of your life talking yourself out of it, convincing yourself you didn't, but yes, you did. So let's keep going. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. So the other thing to get is this. If you think of a tree with a root structure, we tend to think of sin primarily in the horizontal category. The horrors of genocide, rape, murder, abuse, whatever. We tend to, because we see the ugliness of that, right? You read a news report and it's self-evidently ugly. This is awful what's taking place in places around the world, what's taking place in our country. And we see that. In, in Paul's argument in Romans, that's the fruit of the tree, not the root. And so we, we tend to empathize with and resonate with human suffering, human mistreatment. And we hear things like they weren't thankful to God. Well, like they probably should have been. In, in Paul's argument, that's the f- primary charge, that we were intentionally ignorant. And that, that willful ignorance shows itself in so many different fruits that it bears. But understand the logic of the movement is it starts with every one of us holding down the truth, every one of us willfully being ignorant. And then Paul brings up sexual misconduct and sin, which is actually a sign of the foundational problem. You keep reading. Um, They exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man's birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, what happens in the rest of the chapter is God's response to that. So if you're viewing this as a court trial, the, the prosecution's argument and the charge against the defendant is in 18 through 23. They have no excuse. They exchange the glory of God knowingly. Okay? What happens in the rest of this is then God giving people over. Three times, God gave them up, 24. 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. Now we're seeing what God did in judgment. So the first, giving up. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor the bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
So first we get immorality. Now, will God judge immorality? Yes, he will. But actually, in this argument, immorality itself is the judgment. Second, giving over. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one for another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And what's, again, will God judge homosexuality, lesbianism? Yes, he will. But in Romans 1, it's not that it will be judged as much as it is the judgment. It's Because it's, what he's saying, look at the language here, 26. For their women exchanged natural relations. 27, likewise men gave up natural relations. Look back at 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. The judgment is God saying, I will give you over. I will give you over such that you will act out in the physical world the unnatural. See, we were made and correspond to God. Our, our, we were made to worship him, to delight in him, to, to serve him. He was, we were made that he would be our greatest joy. That is what we correspond to properly, right? Just as men and women correspond to each other in, in the physical relationship. And we willfully said, we're going to worship and serve the creation, that which we don't correspond to. It's not fitting for us to worship the creation, but we do. And what God's saying in the second judgment is, okay, I'm going to let you live out visibly this type of unnatural swapping in your sexual lives that you're doing spiritually. It's meant to be a parable. It's meant to be a sign. It's meant to illustrate that Paul's using the same language of exchanging that he just charged man with across the boards. So in one sense, people who struggle and are given over to this sin are only living out what every one of us did spiritually apart from Christ. That, that's the logic of Romans 1. In response to our swapping the natural function of worshiping and serving God, God gave them over to do the same thing physically with each other. And then in 28, or to get to the list that gets every one of us, you may so far think, okay, you haven't hit me yet. These aren't my sins. And again, the final giving up in 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are evil. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Now, there's a catch-all title if I've seen one. Um, you say, well, he didn't name something. It's inventors of evil. That, that covers the rest that he doesn't name. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that's where we see and recognize evil and sin, right? The things that we see and recognize as evil and sin are really the result of God giving us over to the primary challenge, which is every one of us was born into this world willfully ignoring God or making him over such that we made him in our image, something we're comfortable with. And then everything else is simply the judgment of God giving us over to that. Uh, it's basically, there's a word play in 28. Um, I use the, okay, so in English, we'll t 
we do the same thing sometimes in English we do in Greek. We take an alpha primitive to negate something. So there's moral and there's amoral. There's symmetrical and there's asymmetrical. There's a theist and there's an atheist, right? So here, the, uh, the Greek word is dakamadzo, um, and it means to test or approve, to, 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 to give a positive verdict. If you think you ever got to buy a shirt and it's like inspected by number 13, they're dakamadzoing your, your linen, your clothing. They did not see fit to acknowledge God, the knowledge of God. So man looks at the knowledge of God, evident in creation, and says, yeah, that's not worth keeping. Not going to approve that. And then the play on words in Greek is, therefore God gave them up to an unapproved mind. They did not approve the knowledge of God, so God, basically what God's saying is, oh, you want to think perverse and crooked thoughts, here's a mind that does that really well. Here you go. The punishment fits the crime. Um, Basically what God's saying is, you're not going to get to pick and choose where you're perverse and wicked. If that's what you want, if you want to think crookedly, here's a mind that does that really well. Here you go. And then the result of that judgment is seen in all those horizontal sins, that list of 21 vices that Paul gives. But you track the root all the way back up to the, uh, to the court, all the way back to the wall, and the charge is still willful, willful ignorance or rejection of God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. That's the charge. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but the point is all of us and everyone on earth, to some degree, apart from Christ, is engaged in this cover-up, this, this suppression of truth. There are no innocently ignorant people. Microphone? For the people on the... This is quick, sorry. Okay. Okay. So when you talk about God, that is all three persons of the Trinity. Oh, I'm not saying everyone knows what the Trinitarian nature no, of no, God. No, no, but you, believing in God means Father, Son, Spirit. I'm not saying that every unbeliever is aware of the triune God. Paul highlights what aspects of God they're aware of. Look, at, let me, look in chapter 1, he'll say, for what can be known about God is plain to them. So Paul's not saying they have a full knowledge of God, that they, have, they know everything about God. We, we, with the Bible, don't know everything about God. But what they do know is this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, whoever this God is, is powerful and mighty. You look at the stars. This is the work of some powerful person's hands. His eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived through the things that are made, so they were without excuse. So we know this God is wise. We see the wisdom in the, in the animal life and the birds and the plants and everything, and we see his, his um, majesty and his glory. We don't know a ton more about him, and Paul's not saying we know a ton more about him. And without God speaking, I mean, really, in the, in the history of redemption, God's revealing his name to Moses at, at Sinai is huge because that's when we learn the Lord, the Lord abounding in steadfast love. I don't know if we can conclude that simply from natural revelation. But what Paul's going to say we know, and I'll, I'll keep working through Romans, here is we know there's a God. We know there's right and wrong. We know that knowing wrong brings judgment. And we know we do wrong. <laughs> That's what Paul says we know. He doesn't say we know the full gospel. I, I don't argue that everyone knows there's a triune God. Most Israelites, until the New Testament, didn't realize there was a triune God. I 
that's that's not part of the knowledge content that I think you can get in natural. We talk about natural and special revelation. Natural revelation is that which God has revealed to everyone without exception in all places at all times in the history of the world. Natural revelation is what Paul is talking about here. Special revelation is that which God has revealed in the scriptures or through dreams or visions or prophets or angels. Or, but it's, it's always localized to a particular people, particular place, particular time. So natural revelation. So let me continue on. So the first charge is... Um, the first, you have no excuse, is you have no excuse about the knowledge of God. Then he develops his argument, if you look at um, chapter 2, the second, you have no excuse, right? Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So he takes my flow and, and puts, I, I put him in four steps, one, two, three, four, he goes one, three, Two, four. He first condemns people for, for knowing judgment. So the next statement someone says is, okay, I know there's a God, but I didn't know judgment's coming. Paul says, yeah, you did. Well, how, how can you say that? I just told you I didn't believe in judgment. I didn't know judgment. You judge other people. And I'll use Paul's reasoning in, in evangelism all the time. Say, look, have you ever gotten angry enough at someone that you've hit them, you've yelled at them, you've spoken harshly to them? Have you ever poured out justice on somebody? Of course they have, right? Okay, God will point to that on the day of judgment and say, you knew perfectly well the doing of wrong brought punishment because you yourself have judged and poured out that judgment on other people. You have implicitly recognized that the doing of wrong demands some sort of retribution, some sort of reckoning and balancing of the scales. So no one gets to use that excuse. I didn't know judgment was coming. You therefore have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So what I'll say to someone is, look, if God were only to judge you by the standard that you've held other people to, forget his holy standard, if he only judged you by your standard, if only those times and those places where you've gotten angry, where you have poured out your judgment on other people, if he only judged you by that, you're still damned 12 ways to Sunday. You're not getting out of this. You're going to find at the end of this that we've got like eight nooses around our neck. That we are, Whichever way we turn, there's no escape. And so even if all the standard was was simply... The way you judged other people, you and I would be condemned fully and soundly. Then next he gets to, well, I didn't know right and wrong, and he deals with that with no excuse language. Go down to um, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So what he's saying is, again, this gets back to Jesus. You're accountable for what you have. To whom much is given, much will be required. If you don't have the scriptures, you're not going to be judged by the scriptures. We wonder what happens to people in Papua New Guinea who've never heard the gospel. They will not be judged by this book. They're still going to head for hell without a savior because they, he's going to say, are going to be judged by the law of the conscience on their hearts. But read what he says there. For all who have sinned without law will also perish without the law. The law of God, the law of Moses, will not be brought in to judge people who've never heard the gospel. That's not good news, though, because they're still getting judged. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who be justified. For 
when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So what he's saying is, you're, different states have different laws. We just heard about California passing a law. These people who don't have scripture, don't have the law, they're a law to themselves. They get a different standard. They don't get the standard. You and I will be held up to the stricter standard of, of everything we know. Too much is given, much is required. But when people who don't have the scripture stand before God, they won't be judged according to the scripture. They are a law to themselves. But they're still in trouble because no one even keeps the law of conscience. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the judgment will simply be, hey, did you ever do anything that your conscience told you not to do? That's the standard that people, I think, without Scripture will be judged by. And the entire world will be condemned by that standard alone. So it's not unfair. Oh, they didn't keep the Ten Commandments. Well, that's fine. That's fine. Just the, law, the evidence of the law in your heart. Did you keep that or not? So if you add up the knowledge people have, they know this God exists. They know he's wise. They know he's wonderful. And they know they ought to respond in fidelity and thanksgiving to him. They know that failing to do that brings judgment because they judge other people. And they have some knowledge of morality because they have a conscience that pats them on the back sometimes and tells, oh, no, no, don't do that. And they've disregarded that. They're, that's what they're going to be judged on based upon. That's what people who've never heard the gospel will be judged. That's what they know. Natural revelation is sufficient to condemn everyone. It's not going to save anyone. The natural world does not reveal a savior to be received by faith. But this is what Paul says everyone knows. The Gentiles who don't have the law will be judged apart from the law, and there'll be a law to themselves. And so I'll talk to people and say, look, have you ever done things you know are wrong? That your own, your own, you've witnessed against yourself. Your conscience has condemned you for it. Yes. Okay. Then game, set, match. You're done. I'm done. You know? We don't need to argue about, well, how is that? Just, you knew. You knew. And that's what conscience means, with knowledge. Um, and then finally, the final thing we know is that no amount of law-keeping makes up for law-breaking. People, This is where most people I meet have this ridiculous notion that as long as you try your best and you know, live, live good and you're, the, the scales balance, this doesn't work in any other human court. And somehow we think the righteous judge of the world, is, this is going to fly in his courtroom. I mean, just imagine, imagine... Um, if one of these people who they've caught who've committed these atrocities, shootings in schools, whatever, if their defense was, um, here's a list of all the laws my subject, my defendant has kept all of his life. If you look at the big scope of things, he did some terrible things, but only over the course of an hour or two, it's only 3% of what he does. And he's never committed, he's never committed treason, he's never committed arson, he's never committed... Um, you know, faking money, what's the, what, counterfeiting, right? He's never, never done jaywalk. And he's got a list. In fact, if you look, out of all the laws and the statutes, my client has only broken about seven or eight, and he's kept hundreds of them perfectly. And we, we think this is farcical, yet people with a straight face will tell me they think that's how things are going to fly in God's court of law. 
It, it's ridiculous. Nobody anywhere thinks law works this way. And somehow we say, but with God, if my good deeds will not be... Well, first of all, you don't have any good deeds. I don't have any good deeds. But, but even if you did, the keeping the law doesn't make up for the breaking of the law. I'll, I'll, the point I'll make to people is, you know, um, law is simply there to condemn. When I, I, did not, I did not get a single speeding ticket last year. The DMV did not th- send me a thank you note. <laughs> right? Thanks a lot, buddy. Good job. Well done. What? No, that's expected. And if I tried to use that as a defense for some future you know, violation with my car, it would be nonsensical, farcical. And people with a straight face think the righteous God of the universe, that's going to fly. And, and so Paul's saying, look, you know perfectly. In other words, natural revelation should lead us to conclude we are in trouble and prepare us to cry out for mercy. There is a holy God who I ought to obey, I ought to be thankful to, and I have some idea of what he wants me to do because i got this conscience thing. And I don't always do it. In fact, I pretty much do what I want to do. And I know just from the way that I judge other people that when they break that conscience law against me, I get mad. That tells me this holy God's going to get even more mad. And I also know from my own measurement of justice that no amount of law keeping makes up for that. So I'm in trouble. There's nothing I can do to balance the scales. I need mercy. Now, if that's where you're at, you're right where you need to be to receive the gospel. Natural revelation should drive us to that conclusion. It doesn't in most cases unless God's spirit's at work. But that's where you should get to. So the gospel is the best news possible. But sadly, not many people are there. So this is a very long, long answer to your question. But, but I think it's critical in understanding that that little nice old lady who lives next door to you, this is true of her. I don't, I don't care how much she works at the soup kitchen, how nice she is. This is true of her just as much as it's true of, of Pol Pot and anyone else you can think of. Just because the tree, their tree doesn't bear the really ugly fruit that you find ugly at the end of Romans 1 does not mean the root is not identical of suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. And that is what God's angry at. In, in Romans 1, he's angry at that willful suppression of truth. The, the fruit on the tree is just the evidence of the root, which is the problem. So we got five minutes. Any questions? I know there's a ton on Romans 1, 2, and 3, but it's, it's I think, critical Yes. Yeah, mine was in regard to the cornerstone. Yes. That difference between yeah. the broken and crushed. Could you explain that a little yes. bit better? The, the, bro- the cornerstone in Luke. We're back in Luke. We're out of Romans. <laughs> that was a long aside in Romans. Thank you for bringing us back to Luke. So Jesus says, um, everyone who falls on or stumbles on the stone. So the first is you can, the first picture is you can stumble over the stone. And the second is the stone can fall on you. And I think in the context, it's a picture of people stumbling over this rejected stone. And whoever stumbles over Jesus' humility and humiliation, the cross, basically, in other words, is going to get broken. That You're going to perish. Don't stumble over Jesus. And this stone's coming back. Jesus' second coming, his enemies will be crushed. And if this stone falls on you, you're done. So don't fall over the stone. Don't stumble over the stone in unbelief. That's the, the blanks in my notes. Don't stumble over the stone in unbelief. And you certainly don't want this stone to land on you. Um, that's the two pictures of... He, he's, told the, he's told the people, I'm going to be killed. And your vineyard's going to get taken away. 
And they say, oh, no, 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 let that never be. No, 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 no. Look, guys, you ascribe Psalm 118 to me. I'm the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That means I also must be the stone who's rejected. If you stumble over that, if you stumble over this, this rejected stone, you're going to get broken. And if this stone lands on you, you're going to be dust. And I think that's what he's basically saying. is a warning to them. Don't, don't stumble over this. Basically, what you're going to see in three or four days, don't stumble over that. You're going to get broken. If you stumble, if you reject, because these people are, in some sense, on board with Jesus right now. They're distinct from the leaders. They're hanging on his every word, according to the end of 19. They're rising up early to see him. So in some sense, they are on board with, in favor of, in some sense, they're inclined to Jesus. And we know that at the crucifixion, that's going to be not true for the overwhelming majority of them. And so I think there's a warning here. They're going to stumble at, as long as they think Jesus might bring in the kingdom, they're with him. Once it becomes clear that in a geopolitical sense he's going down, they abandon ship. And so they stumble over this rejected stone. Don't, don't stumble over this rejected stone, is I think what he's saying. Does it, that make sense? Okay. We have one minute. Oh, Lee Carpenter. Oh, no, micro, I think we should speak with the microphone. Should, should we actually pledge allegiance to the flag? Any my, flag? Even? My mom has just ended this um, ABF, and <laughs> I'll see you all next week. <laughs> I'll say this. I think oath-making should not be something we do lightly. And if you haven't thought through it, I would advise you not to make another oath till you do. And on that note, we'll break. Jesus had some pretty heavy-duty things to say about oaths, did he not? As does James. So if you make oaths out of rote without thinking, I would suggest you're wrong. Whatever you're doing. See you all next week. <laughs>